This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Hey, listeners of the Heartland Daily Podcast. For today's episode, we have Justin Haskins' remote presentation from the 14th International Conference on Climate Change in Las Vegas, Nevada. Good evening. This wasn't exactly how I planned to deliver this presentation tonight about the Great Reset. Unfortunately, a family emergency has kept me from traveling to Las Vegas. Uh, But I felt that this presentation was so important that it couldn't wait for another night, and that the audience, all of you, are so important that you needed to hear this. The America we remember, the America of carefree summers and Saturday night trips to the movie theaters, of warm family holiday gatherings and mom and pop shops and restaurants, that's been replaced with a culture driven by suspicion, rampant fear, and ideological and political tribalism, and dominated by massive multinational corporations. Sure, Grandma can still bake apple pies while the family gathers around the television set and watches a good old-fashioned baseball game, with masks on, of course, but beneath the glowing stars and stripes veneer is a terminally ill superpower teetering on the edge. And the worst part is, our most disruptive, dangerous days still lie ahead. At lavish cocktail parties in European resort towns and in the boardrooms of the world's largest corporations, powerful and influential leaders are putting the finishing touches on the vast infrastructure needed to alter our communities forever. These changes, some enormous and some barely noticeable to most people, are all part of a sweeping proposal to transform the global economy, a plan disturbingly named the Great Reset. The final result of the Great Reset would be nothing short of a shocking 1984-like brand of authoritarianism. Societies with personal freedoms and massive amounts of corporate cronyism and political and economic centralization. And these are the features of their program, not its unattended consequences. Now, whenever you talk about the Great Reset seriously, as I'm going to do tonight, those who have advocated for its implementation immediately cry, conspiracy theory, in an attempt to discredit anyone, anyone at all, from speaking out about this important topic. You see, the only people who believe that the Great Reset is dangerous are flat earther, fake moon landing lunatics who believe that the government is actively using cell phone towers to control people's minds. But the radicals, the radicals behind the Great Reset, I mean, they can say whatever they want about people like me and about others who are fighting against the Great Reset. But I've spent the past 18 months compiling ironclad evidence about the Great Reset and about those who are behind it. And I can assure you, it is all too real. Is it a conspiracy theory? Well, there is a conspiracy But at this point, I don't think it's a conspiracy theory. I think it's a conspiracy fact. But you don't need to take my word for it. I have a mountain of quotes 
from leaders of the Great Reset Movement talking about how they want to fundamentally transform the world and push the reset button on the global economy. And I want to provide some of those to you tonight. Now, keep in mind that there are literally dozens and dozens and dozens. We could spend all night long just talking about things that people are saying about the Great Reset, people who support it, openly saying radical, crazy things about the Great Reset. So just keep this in mind as we go through this list very quickly. First is Mr. Klaus Schwab. Klaus Schwab is the head of the World Economic Forum. These are the Davos folks. These are the people who are leading the charge on the Great Reset or for the Great Reset. At a June 2020 meeting, when they first launched this Great Reset initiative, the, the World Economic Forum is, is again, one of the, the people mainly behind this, leading the charge on this new marketing slogan. Klaus Schwab said the COVID-19 lockdowns, in fact, I think this actually may have come from an article that he wrote, the COVID-19 lockdowns may be gradually easing, but anxiety about the world's social and economic prospects is only intensifying. To achieve a better outcome, the world must act jointly and swiftly to keep, don't just gloss over this, to revamp all aspects of our societies and economies, from education to social contracts and working conditions. Every industry, from oil and gas to tech, must be transformed. In short, we need a great reset of capitalism. Now, that, that came from an article that Klaus Schwab wrote when they launched the Great Reset Initiative in June 2020. But there's more. Jennifer Morgan, head of Greenpeace International. I know there's a lot of fans of Greenpeace in the room tonight. She says, we set up a new world order after World War II. That's fun. It's always great when they start talking about a new world order, isn't it? We're now in a different world than we were then. We need to ask, what can we be doing differently? The World Economic Forum has a big responsibility in that as well, to be pushing the reset button and looking at how to create well-being for people and for the earth. This was spoken at an event promoting the Great Reset. Here we have Prince Charles. Great hair. I love it. Prince Charles co-host of the World Economic Forum Great Reset event in June 2020. We have a golden opportunity to see something good from this crisis. What crisis is he talking about? He's talking about the COVID-19 pandemic. And he says, it's unprecedented shockwaves may well make people more receptive to big visions of change. It is an opportunity we have never had before and may never have again. A golden opportunity. Millions of people jobs lost. By the time this is all over, millions and millions of people dead. This is a golden opportunity in the mind of Prince Charles to reset the global economy. Al Gore, we can't have a, a climate conference without mentioning Al Gore. You might remember Al, he's the inventor of the internet. So I think this is time for a great reset, Gore said, after arguing that electric cars and renewable energy sources like wind and solar can provide lucrative economic benefits. This was uh, during a TV interview. We've got a lot to fix of these problems that have been allowed to fester for way too long. And the climate crisis is an opportunity, an opportunity, there's that word again, an opportunity to create tens of millions of new jobs, clean up the air, and reduce the death rate from pandemics, by the way, because the air pollution from burning fossil fuels heightens the death rates from coronavirus. Really? Does it, Al? Well, sounds like a good justification for a great reset, doesn't it? I want, I want everyone to keep in mind this is just the tip of the iceberg. 
There are literally dozens of other leaders who have come out and supported the Great Reset. We have Boris Johnson, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada, Antonio, Antonio Guterres, the head of the United Nations, the head of the IMF, the European Central Bank, the president of Microsoft, Brian Moynihan, the CEO of Bank of America. He's a huge player in all of this. John Kerry, the U.S. climate czar. There's a lot more on him later. And there are many, many others. This isn't isolated to just a, a few fringe groups, activist groups. This isn't limited to just a few world leaders or international institutions. The elites from all over the world have openly come out in support of the Great Reset. Speaking of world leaders, Mr. Joe Biden. There is overwhelming proof that Joe Biden supports the Great Reset. Overwhelming proof. When he's not mowing down on ice cream, he's working to push the reset button on the global economy. Proof number one, and there's a whole bunch of things that I could look at. Build back better. Build back better. Does anyone else think that's just an absolutely stupid slogan? A stupid name for rebuilding the economy, for naming a new program? Build back better. The build back better plan? Well, as stupid as it is, it's not even Joe Biden's idea. The build back better slogan has been used for years and years and years by people involved with the Great Reset both at the World Economic Forum, at the World Bank, and at other institutions, Build Back Better has been the common slogan that's been used for several years. Boris Johnson, Justin Trudeau, other people have used the very same language. In fact, as soon as the Great Reset launched, or even right before the Great Reset launched, you started seeing world leaders all using Build Back Better together in unison, almost as though it was a coordinated plan. Huh. But there's other proof too. Joe Biden has uh, created task force, climate and ESG task force in the division enforcement of the SEC. We're going to get into what ESG standards are and how they relate. But as you'll see later on, this is a, a key move for the Biden administration to help create a great reset in the United States. Um, and there are many other things I could point to as well, but I don't need to come up with lots of evidence because John Kerry, the climate czar in the Biden administration said, when asked by the president of the World Economic Forum during a meeting in November of 2020, right after the November election, prior to John Kerry being named the climate czar publicly, he was asked about Joe Biden and the Great Reset and what we can expect of Joe Biden's involvement in the Great Reset. And he said this, it, the Great Reset, will happen. And I think it will happen with greater speed and with greater intensity than a lot of people might imagine. And he specifically said that Joe Biden supports the Great Reset and is 100% behind this agenda. So we don't actually need to speculate. We don't need to come up with proof. There's plenty of proof out there that Joe Biden supports the Great Reset, but we know it because John Kerry, a close political ally of Joe Biden, a member of the Biden administration, has already been gone on the record saying that not only does he, John Kerry, support the Great Reset, but Joe Biden supports it as well. Well, what is the Great Reset? I mean, there's all this grand, crazy language that you hear about pushing the reset button on the global economy, but what is it? Well, before we can point out some of the details of what elites want to do to push the reset button on the world, uh, we need to talk about why or their justifications for, for their stated justifications for why they're going to have this Great Reset. The first is the golden opportunity that I mentioned earlier, the COVID-19 pandemic. They're saying, look, everybody, 
The world's economy has been destroyed by COVID, not by us. I mean, I know that we shut down the global economy, but you know what? It wasn't us that did this. It was the pandemic. So we have this golden opportunity to reset everything, to change the world. So the golden opportunity, that's number one. That's the first big justification, COVID-19. But that's a short-term justification. It's not a long-term justification, right? Because eventually, God willing, the pandemic will end. The lockdowns will end. We're not going to have this forever. People eventually are going to want to return to normal. So you need to have a long-term justification. You need to have a long-term justification for radically, fundamentally transforming the entire global economy. And guess what? We have just the justification for you. Climate change. Now, I don't need to go into detail on this. You already know how climate change has been used as a justification to transform the world. But, but... It's important to keep in mind that this is the key long-term justification for those who support the Great Reset. It's not just Bernie Sanders and AOC and people on the far left. It's elites too. It's elites perhaps more than anyone else that want to use climate change to change the world, to centralize power, to redistribute wealth, to do all of the things that they've wanted to do but never had a really good excuse for doing it. Well, climate change provides that good excuse. But what is the Great Reset? What does it actually involve? What sort of policy proposals are involved in the Great Reset? There are two primary parts to it. The first is big government, but not necessarily socialism. Now, what, what do I mean by that? What do I mean by big government, but not necessarily socialism? Well, the elites want big, massive government programs. They want things like the Green New Deal. They want things like uh, basic income programs. They want things like wealth redistribution, ta more taxes, things like that. But they want to control the property. They're the ones that want to hold on to the property. They don't want a Marxist revolution. They don't want a, uh, a collective ownership and management of property. They, they want corporations to own the property. They want elites to control the property. And then they want to use a uh, uh, government to control and manage society, but not to necessarily collectively own and manage everything. So it's not socialism, but it does involve big government programs. Now it's easy to think when you first start looking at the Great Reset that this is the primary thing that you should be focused on. That the primary thing you should be focused on is big government programs. But that's actually not the biggest part of the Great Reset. The biggest part of the Great Reset is the second piece. And the second piece is the, the fundamental transformation of the economy itself. It's not just big government programs. It's a, a completely new framework for uh, the global economy. Stakeholder capitalism. That's the name of this complete transformation of society. Now, what is stakeholder capitalism? What do they mean by this? Well, as soon as you start looking into the Great Reset, you'll find people saying, using those words, stakeholder capitalism. And they often contrast it with something called shareholder capitalism. Shareholder capitalism, in their minds, is our modern economic system. It's this broken system that puts customers of businesses and the owners, the shareholders of businesses, and um, the employees of those businesses before all else. You see, we shouldn't have an economy that focuses on customers and shareholders 
and employees. We should have a system that focuses on the stakeholders, the stakeholders. Well, who are the stakeholders? The stakeholders are everybody. Everyone's a stakeholder. You see, stakeholder is essentially just another way of saying collectivist. So when you hear people start talking about stakeholder capitalism, what they're really saying is collectivist capitalism. They're saying we need to change our economic system so that businesses in society, all businesses, are required to focus on the collective, not on their customers, not on customer service, not on providing the best goods and services, but on the collective as a whole. What's good for the collective? That's the main focus. And that's what they're trying to do with this transformation. So how is, what does a stakeholder capitalist system look like? Well, it's heavily focused on something called environmental, social, and governance standards. You may have heard about this. Uh, a little bit. We're going to have some presentations this weekend that talk about ESG standards. ESG is often how it's commonly referred to. ESG standards is a, is a completely new framework for evaluating businesses. So again, instead of looking at profits and losses and traditional business metrics, we want to look at those things still, but we want to add to those things a, a, a whole new focus. And that focus is the collective. So how do we go about doing that? We provide a scoring system for companies. We actually award under this ESG model credit scores for companies. For those of you who are familiar with the Chinese social credit scoring system, um, it's very similar to that. It's essentially a social credit score for companies. In China, they're actually rolling out a social credit scoring system for individuals. So the government's actually going to provide scores to individual Chinese citizens based on how good they are, how bad they are. What kind of a citizen are you? And they're going to base it on, you know, how how well you drive, uh, what your education is, uh, are you committing crimes, are you engaging in, in activities that the government thinks are wrong, uh, and they're using a mass surveillance state to make sure that the, to, to, to uh, evaluate citizens and determine who the good citizens are and who the bad citizens are, provide people with scores, and then award them based on how well they're performing in line with the Communist Party standards. Terrifying, right? Well, that's exactly what this ESG score is, except for businesses. And it's for businesses here in the United States and in Europe primarily. So it's a social credit score for companies. That's the best way to think about it. Again, not focused on profit, debt, customer satisfaction. Who the woke businesses are and who the bad companies are. Dozens of metrics used. So I wanted to provide a couple of examples of this from actual ESG scoring systems. The first is racial quotas, racial quotas. So this is real. I'm not making this up. There are ESG scoring systems that have already been adopted, widely adopted, in fact, that look at racial quotas of the people that exist at a business. So what they'll do is they'll say, do you have, again, not making this up, do you have the right ratio of, say, Asians to Hispanic workers at your company? Because, you know, we already have plenty of Asians. We don't need more of them. We need more Hispanics. And you don't have enough Hispanics. So you're going to have a lower ESG score. That's how this works. CO2 footprint, that's another one. That's an easy one. There's all sorts of environmental metrics. That's the E in ESG, environment. Um, is your CO2 footprint too large? How large are your, uh, your facilities? How much land do they consume? Uh, do you use too much plastic? Uh, what's the air quality in your supply chain? 
Who are you doing business with? And what countries are you doing business? These are the things that they're going to look at. What's the pay gap between your CEOs and lower level employees, between your managers and your lower level employees? What's the gender ratio of your management? Um, what's the gender ratio of the people who are in your management programs? Again, these are all real life examples from things that we see in ESG scores or we see in, in uh, programs related to ESG at actual businesses trying to make sure that they comply with ESG. So again, it's a way of evaluating companies to see how woke they are. Now, this is already widely adopted. Now, you might be thinking, well, okay, ESG scores, maybe this is something some companies will sign on to, but, but are all companies really going to sign on to this ESG thing? Yes, yes, they are. In fact, more than 80% of businesses here in the United States, and that data is a couple years old, 80% of large businesses in the United States already have ESG scores in place. They already have ESG systems. They've been building this for years and years and years. And that study comes from KPMG, um, a, a very uh, um, well-respected organization that does auditing and other things for businesses. So more than 80% of large corporations in the United States and earlier this year, because you might be thinking, well, okay, so maybe these large corporations are all going to go along with this, but are, are smaller businesses or medium-sized businesses, are they really going to create this ESG system and go woke and, and you know, spend all of this money trying to track ESG scores? Well, Moody's came out with this great, fun, amazing new tool earlier this year that is an algorithm that predicts what your ESG score will be if you're a smaller, medium-sized company, even if you report nothing to them. And that gives financial, uh, financial um, investors and financial institutions and government bureaucrats and other people a way of looking at your ESG score if you're a small business or a medium-sized business, even if you're not reporting any ESG data. How do they predict this? How can they create an algorithm like that? Well, they look at the business that you're in. They look where you're located. They look at the basic publicly available information about you and they just invent an ESG score for you. This is a real product now being offered by Moody's as of 2021. So even if you don't want an ESG score, you're gonna get one. There's no way around it. Remember what Klaus Schwab said, every country has to participate. Every industry has to participate. Why is this happening? Why are so many banks and corporations agreeing to go along with the Great Reset? Why? Well, there are several reasons, but the first is fear. Fear of government. Now, we've got several examples that kind of prove this. I don't have time to go into the, into the details of all of these. But the first thing that you need to know is that this whole ESG model has been touted for a long time. People have been anticipating that it's going to occur for a while. And out of fear, many businesses have been signing up for it, even though they don't necessarily want to go along with it. And that was their fears were justified somewhat earlier this year when the European Parliament, which is in the European Union, passed a resolution mandating an ESG system for all European Union, large European Union companies, as well as many small businesses in the European Union, but not just for those businesses. It would be an ESG system that, that is uh, imposed on every company that's in the value chain of those companies. So if you do business with a European Union business that is required to have ESG scores, you're also required to have ESG scores, at least for some aspect of your business or to comply with European ESG scores. So 
Businesses believe this is coming no matter what. Whether they want it or not, many businesses believe it's coming. And so they're preparing for it. Doesn't it make sense to be on? It's better to be on the, uh, uh, you know, on the right, on the right hand of the devil, right? With the right hand of the devil than is to be in the devil's path, right? That's the idea. That's the mindset for many of these corporations. So fear is number one. And in the United States, the SEC and the Federal Reserve and others have been building ESG offices as well. Again, I don't have time to get into that. Um, but there are lots of signs here in the United States under the Biden administration that ESG scores could become mandated here in the United States. Number two is greed, right? So first we have fear. Now we have greed. When you want to understand what's going on in the world, you often can figure it out by just following the money. So when we follow the money, what do we find? What we find is that there are lots of investors and banks tied to, uh, who have tied their dollars to ESG scores. Okay. Now the, the best example of this, and there are many is principles of responsible investment. Some of you might be familiar with this. This is a group that emerged, um, in 2006 out of an effort at the United Nations specifically focused on sustainable investment. Uh, many, much of it was focused on climate change. In 2006, this principles of responsible investment group came out. The whole purpose of it was to try to get investors to impose sustainable investment, ESG scores, things like that on businesses by uh, using their dollars to force companies to move in that direction. And it wasn't just investors, it was also banks and others as well. There were a total of 100 signatories for the principles of responsible investment in 2006. Today, there are more than 3,000 and together they control more than $100 trillion in assets. Trillion with a T. You're not misreading that. It's trillion with a T. $100 trillion in assets. And that data is a little bit old. So these investors have massive amounts of money. And what they're doing is they're going to these large corporations and they're saying, you're going to go along with this. You're going to do this. It's going to happen. And that leads us to number three, coercion. Investment management companies are not just suggesting that it's a good idea for companies to go along with this because they could make money off of it. And principles of responsible, principles of responsible investment have been very clear that if you go along with this ESG system, you're going to make a whole lot of money. In fact, they have whole presentations on their website talking about all this money you're going to make because government's going to pump all this money and central banks are going to pump all this money into ESG related causes, sustainable investment, fighting climate change, all of this. So if you invest in these causes, you're going to make lots of money. In other words, cronyism. But there's also a level of coercion here too. The investment management companies who are getting filthy rich off of the government printing trillions and trillions of dollars. We're talking about groups like BlackRock, Vanguard, and others. They are heavily invested in ESG related activities. The big 10 investment management companies, BlackRock, State Street, Fidelity, and others control more than $34 trillion in assets, $34 trillion in assets. That's how much they control. By comparison, total consumer spending in 2020 was $12.5 trillion. Total US GDP was less than $21 trillion. Now I want you to understand this. BlackRock alone has roughly $10 trillion in assets under management. 
So when people think, why would companies go along with this? They're going to alienate half of their customers. All these conservatives, they don't want these companies going along with these woke causes. They don't want Bank of America and uh, American Airlines getting involved in, in voter laws in Georgia. Why is Major League Baseball moving its all-star game from Atlanta, Georgia, where there are lots of minorities, to Colorado, to Denver, Colorado, where there are not as many minorities. Uh, it doesn't make any sense over a voting rights law that they say is racist. So you're moving out of a community that would that'd be more likely to benefit from this? Minorities are more likely to benefit in Atlanta than they are to benefit in Colorado. So you're moving the all-star game? Why? Why do you even care about voting right laws? Why, why is it even relevant to you if you're Major League Baseball? It's all tied into this ESG system. It explains so much of what's going on in the world. It explains why Coca-Cola has race, uh, all sorts of, of racial training and critical race theory for their employees. Why would you be treating, why would you be teaching employees at Coca-Cola about critical race theory? What does that have to do with selling Coca-Cola products? What does that have to do with Coke Zero? Nothing. It has nothing to do with it, but they're doing it because it's all part of this coercion. These big investment management companies want these businesses to go woke because they think they're going to make lots and lots of money off of it. So they're forcing them to do it. And they control so much money. Again, $34 trillion in assets in just the big 10 investment management companies, dwarfing consumer spending, that they can buy stocks. They can buy so much, uh, so many stocks, or they already control so many stocks, that they can actually force boards uh, at these major corporations to go along with what they want. And anyone who does not go along with it will be forced out. And we saw this with ExxonMobil. This actually played out earlier this year in 2021, where you had woke investors, including groups like BlackRock, demanding that the board of directors at ExxonMobil move away from fossil fuels. It's ExxonMobil, and they want them to move away from fossil fuels as part of this ESG movement. And when some of the board of directors refused to go along with it, there was a massive internal war where they actually tried pushing members of the board of directors at ExxonMobil out in order to get people in who supported this woke agenda. That's the power of these investment management companies. They're the ones who are really driving the change at a corporate level, making it happen rapidly. So we have this consolidation of stock ownership. This is this is just absolutely amazing. Uh, there's research by uh, these two scholars, one who's a professor at Harvard Law School and the other an associate professor at uh, Boston University School of Law. And they found that the average ownership stake of the big three investment firms, that's BlackRock, uh, State Street, and I believe Vanguard, was 5.2% in 1998. Okay, so that's how much stock they owned in 1998. But in 2017, it was 20%. 20% of all stock or most stock was owned by these big three investment management companies. And even more importantly than that, the big three collectively cast an average of about 25% of the votes at S&P 500 companies. And these same scholars believe that by the time we get to, uh, I believe it's within the next couple of decades, the, that collective ownership is going to go from 20% to about 40%. So, What's happening is there's a consolidation of, the, of ownership of stock from these investment management companies. They take in money from other people and then they buy stock with that and then they use stock ownership to control these companies. 
And there's no way around it. If you're the corporation, of course, you're going to go along with it. Why are you going to fight these people? These people actually own the stock. Why do they want this? Why do these big investment management companies want this? Again, because they believe they're going to keep making lots of money off of it. They're dependent off of huge, massive amounts of money printing, off of uh, regular uh, certain regulatory changes and things like that that have been going on. They're dependent on keeping government happy and keeping the cash flowing in from central banks. That's what these investment management companies want. And they know that government and central banks and others want this big, massive, great reset, ESG scores and all of that. So investment management companies are the strong arm in all of this that are forcing these corporations to go along with it. Um, at least the corporations that are not going along with it willingly. And of course, there are plenty that want to go along with it uh, for their own selfish reasons. The second part of this coercion is the central banks and the private banks. I just alluded to that a little bit, but there's actually more to it than just saying that the central banks and private banks are providing printing trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars and these big investment management companies are benefiting off of it. And so there and government is using these trillions and trillions of dollars to promote these ESG scores and and build, uh, you know, green new deals and things like that. In addition to all of that, central banks and private banks are openly saying openly saying that they're not going to do business with people in the future who are not going along with woke causes, especially as they relate to climate change. Now, I want to read to you something in particular that I found just absolutely astounding. This is a conversation between Klaus Schwab, remember, he's the head of the World Economic Forum, and Christine Lagarde, the head of the European Central Bank. Now, the European Central Bank is like the Fed for the European Union. Um, 19 nations use the euro and, and the European Central Bank is in charge of managing all of that. During the interview, Schwab asked Lagarde about the role that central banks should have in society, especially when dealing with things like climate change. And Lagarde responded firmly, stating that central banks should use their power to alter society and change policy directly. Again, this is all part of the Great Reset. Christine Lagarde, big supporter of the Great Reset. So, um... She says, what role can central banks play in the fight against climate change? And that's a highly controversial issue. She's responding to Klaus Schwab asking that question. There are some traditional thinkers, traditional thinkers, who believe that central banks should altogether stay out of the business and exclusively concentrate on inflation and price stability. Yep, that's right. That's what central banks are supposed to do. She says, I strongly disagree with that myself. At the European Central Bank, we now have wrapped up and concluded our strategy review, which was the first one in 17 years. So they don't do this very often. This is all part of the Great Reset. And I was blessed to have an entire governing council unanimously agree that the fight against climate change should be one of the considerations that we take when we determine monetary policy. So at least the European Central Bank is of the view that climate change is an important component in order to decide on monetary policy. So then, after acknowledging that central banks like her own should get involved in addressing these policy problems, Christine Lagarde admits that people are going to have to suffer and sacrifice under this emerging economic model that involves the central bank getting involved in things like climate change so that they can fight climate change. And she goes, and that takes me to your second question. Can we arrive at that trade-off between fighting climate change preserving biodiversity, and yet securing enough growth to respond to legitimate demands of the population. And my first answer, Klaus, to be firm, is that we have to have a way of life. Is that to have a way of life, we have 
to have life. We need life. And in the medium term, we do have major threats on the horizon that could cause the death of hundreds of thousands of people. So we have to think life first. We have to think way of life second. Isn't that incredible? It's amazing. She goes on. How can we come together to make sure that we secure the first priority, which is life, and also protect the way of life that people have? Now listen to this and make sure that the cost of it is not so high for some people that they just cannot tolerate it. She's talking about central banks and governments imposing climate policy. I think that the trade-off that we reach will probably require some redistribution. Yeah, you think? Big shock. Because it is clear that the most exposed people, the less privileged people, are those that are going to need some help. Wow. And it's not just her. It's not just the European Central Bank. The Federal Reserve is also moving in this direction. They have offices at the European Central, Ma Central Bank. They actually created two new entities, the Financial Stability Climate Committee, which is focusing on the broader financial system, and the Supervision Climate Committee, which focuses on individual institutions. So you can bet that over the next several years, and this is all happening very rapidly. Remember what John Kerry said, this is going to happen faster and with greater intensity than most people realize. You're going to see the Federal Reserve promote these policies, push these policies as well. We're seeing banks, all of the largest banks in the United States or many of the largest banks in the United States have already said that they're going to phase out fossil fuels from all of their businesses, their business model, from all of their portfolios over the next couple of decades. So if you want to get a loan with, say, Bank of America or Citibank or something, you're not going to be able to do it. They're going to force you. They're going to force you out of that business by debanking you, by making it impossible for you to do this. And they've actually started debanking certain individuals. The Trump administration, uh, 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 Donald Trump and, and, and uh, Donald Trump's business interests have been debanked by some extremely large banks. Um, some people who were in the Trump administration have also been debanked. A lot of that happened in the wake of September of the uh, January 6th attacks uh, at the Capitol building. So there is a massive amount of coercion that's going on here, a massive amount of coercion. And it's happening with banks, financial institutions, investment management companies, regulatory bodies, all of these big elites, corporations moving in the same direction, pushing for a great reset. Now, what are they saying? I want to be fair. I want to be fair to them. What are they saying? What are the people who support the Great Reset saying? Well, let's take a listen and let's hear what they have to say. The pandemic has radically changed the world as we know it. And the actions we take today as we work to recover will define our generation. Oh, is the time to think what history would say about this crisis. 2020 has been challenging on a lot of levels, as economic, environmental and societal frailties have been laid bare. But it's also proved that when we need to, we can act rapidly and restructure our lives. The recovery from the pandemic is an opportunity. We can see rays of hope in the form of a vaccine, but there is no vaccine for the planet. Nature needs a bailout. You don't want to go back to the status quo that you had before simply because it was the status quo that got us here. With everything falling apart, we can reshape the world in ways we couldn't before. Ways that better address so many of the challenges we face. And that's why so many are calling for a great reset. A great reset? That sounds more like buzzword bingo masking some nefarious plan for world domination. 
hands up, this kind of slogan hasn't gone down well. But all we really want to say is that we all have an opportunity to build a better world. And it's not surprising that people who've been disenfranchised by a broken system and pushed even further by the pandemic will suspect global leaders of conspiracy. But the world's not that simple. Every one of us has differing priorities, values, and ideas. That's part of why solutions are so hard to come by and why we all need to be involved in the decision-making. Because whether it's politicians, CEOs, academics, activists... All right, let's stop it right there. Now, I want you to keep a couple of things in mind here, right? This, this video that we just watched was made in reaction to a backlash against the Great Reset because a lot of people were really freaked out about this whole pushing the Great Reset, you know, pushing the reset button on the whole global economy, transforming societies, transforming the social contract, all of these things that Great Reset supporters have been talking about. So they produced this video at a, at a Great Reset event held in January 2021, I believe, to try to alleviate those fears. And that's what they came up with. That was their pushback against these so-called conspiracy theories about the Great Reset. This is their big evidence. Now, I wanted, I wanted to show you this video, not only to, to give them an opportunity to defend themselves, but also because I just found this amazing. This video here has um, key figures, key figures, let's show this video, has key figures involved in the Great Reset Movement. Now just ask yourself when you look at some of the people that they show in this video, meant to make you feel better about the Great Reset. Let's take a look at some of the key figures. We got Al Gore in the background, we've got Joe Biden, we've got Greta, uh, she's up here in the bottom right-hand corner, and then of course, Vladimir Putin. I believe this is Christine Lagarde, who I just talked about at the European Central Bank. These are the people who are supposed to make us feel better about the Great Reset? Vladimir Putin? Al Gore? Joe Biden? George Bush? These are the people I'm supposed to look at these people and say, oh, oh, yeah, you know what? I got nothing to worry about. Why should I worry about the Great Reset? Vladimir Putin's involved. This is insanity. But it just shows you how detached from reality these people are. Now, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? What do we do? Well, as this presentation has shown, the forces pushing for a great reset or whatever other marketing slogan they'll adopt next, they are extremely powerful. And it's going to take a strong commitment from those of us who believe in individual liberty, working together to stop this transformation of the world. Government bureaucrats, bankers, and corporations aren't gods to whom we have to beg on our hands and knees for permission to live our lives according to our own desires. All of us have a role to play in this fight for freedom, for pushing back against that idea. At the Heartland Institute, Donald Kendall and I, in the Stopping Socialism Center, have been conducting groundbreaking research about the reset and working closely with media companies for more than a year and a half. And about 12 months ago, Donald and I started writing a book about the Great Reset with nationally syndicated radio host and owner of Blaze Media, Glenn Beck. Glenn and I actually wrote the America We Remember passage that I read at the start of this presentation for our book about the Great Reset which I'm happy to report finally is scheduled for publication in just a few months in January, 2022. 
In addition to co-authoring a book about the reset with me, Glenn Beck and his research staff have devoted hundreds of hours of time in additional research, and Glenn has aired numerous in-depth reports about the Great Reset on his radio and television networks. And many other hosts on the Blaze Network have done the same thing. Fox News hosts have done uh, Laura Ingram, Tucker Carlson. They've devoted some time to the Great Reset as well, although probably not as much time as they should. Additionally to all of that, I've spoken about The Great Reset on dozens of radio and television shows, including Tucker Carlson tonight, and the articles and videos I've produced about The Reset uh, for Fox News, The Hill, and for a variety of other outlets has been viewed more than one million times. But as important as all of that work has been, your role in the battle against The Great Reset, the people who are in this room tonight, is especially unique and vital, and that's why I desperately wanted to provide this presentation to all of you. It may sound strange, but whenever I talk about the Great Reset, I'm reminded by the Washington Post completely self-righteous motto, democracy dies in darkness. I know, it's, it's horrible. As much as I loathe the Washington Post, and I do, I agree that the preservation of a free society does, in fact, require a well-informed public. When people are controlled by lies, by the darkness, they can be manipulated into thinking just about anything, including that the only way to save human life on Earth is to hand over every freedom we have to corporations, banks, BlackRock, government officials, and activist groups. Only they, only the elites, can save us. See, the Great Reset's biggest weakness is that it depends on lies, those lies, and especially lies about climate change. The left knows, and the elites know, because this isn't just a left and right thing, the elites know that if enough people believe that climate change is the equivalent of a Texas-sized asteroid hurtling towards the Earth, and that Klaus Schwab and Joe Biden and John Kerry are just the Bruce Willis-like heroes that we need to stop it, then the people of America and Europe will give them anything they want. Literally anything. They know that. People will, will do anything to stop that looming catastrophe. So, lies matter. Lies about science lead to lies about climate change. They're used to create lies about climate change. And lies about climate change lead to lies about the need for a great reset. And lies about the need for a great reset lead to lies about centralizing power and control. And that leads to lies about the need for authoritarianism. And that's the end of freedom as we know it. Lies. So, no pressure or anything. But exposing the scientific realities about climate change is very likely one of the most important things anyone in the world can do right now to stop the rise of authoritarianism. So, let's take this opportunity this weekend to do as the Founding Fathers once did, mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor, and to recommit ourselves to the truth and to shining a dark light, a bright light in dark places. Thank you so much for your attention, and may God bless all of the work that you're doing to save our great republic. Thank you so much.